Hi everyone. So before we begin, it's summertime. And just like my favorite rock bands are on tour, so too can Ju I Don't Know come to your community. Now I probably can't fill a stadium, but maybe your synagogue or church or mosque or other institution. Perhaps your community would like to dive into the unsolved mysteries of Jewish history and what they say about contemporary Judaism. Or we can talk about modern Israel and current events. I do planes, trains, and automobiles, and even Zoom. For an exorbitant rate befitting this globe-spanning podcast, your community can get a personal history presentation or group tech study. Find out more at jewautonow.com slash teaching, or hit me up at jewautonowpodcast at gmail.com. And now, let's get into today's topic. We're in London, a few weeks after the Six-Day War ended in June of 1967. A British Jewish doctor named Emmanuel Herbert quietly opened the door to his office to usher in two men and their bodyguards. One was an Irish-Israeli named Yaakov Herzog, chief advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Levi Eshkol. And the other was a patient whom the doctor only wrote down as Charles in his paperwork. Charles was actually the 32-year-old King Hussein of Jordan. Since 1963, the king had been using Dr. Herbert's office to meet secretly with Yaakov Herzog and other Israeli officials. The Israeli advisor and Jordanian king had formed a close bond, despite the public hostility between the two countries. Herzog encountered a king deeply shaken by the enormity of the loss, under immense pressure at home and exhausted in the face of defeat. They commiserated about the lead-up to the war that neither side had wanted, both expressing the miscalculations, bad interpretations, and missed signals that had brought it about. King Hussein was ready to move in the direction of peace with Israel. But to do so, Israel would have to return the West Bank and East Jerusalem to Jordan. Tom Segev quotes King Hussein, quote, Not only you have rights, we also have rights. Do not push us into a corner. Be careful of our feelings. Treat them with respect and understanding. The region is at a crossroads. I hope we will take a positive course. So much depends on you. End quote. But at this moment, Israel wasn't prepared to give back more than bits and pieces of the West Bank, and not at all East Jerusalem. While Sinai and the Golan Heights had been offered back to Egypt and Syria in exchange for peace, no decision had been made on what to do with the West Bank. So let's dwell for a moment on the missed opportunity here. There were lots of reasons for Israel to hang on to those territories. For defense, for the Jewish holy sites, for Jewish sovereignty over united Jerusalem. But what if Israel had agreed with King Hussein in that moment? All those million-plus Palestinians would have ended up in Jordan. There would have only been a minimum of the occupation that we have today. But Israel wasn't prepared to make that deal. But also, let's not make too much of it. King Hussein wouldn't have been able to do it anyway. He told the Israelis that while he was ready to make peace, he couldn't go out alone in front of the rest of the Arabs. And the rest of the Arabs, led by President Nasser of Egypt, were making it clear that anyone who would dare to talk to the Israelis now would pay with his life. King Hussein knew what this could mean. In 1951, Hussein had been standing next to his grandfather when that king had been assassinated by a Palestinian terrorist for his moderate views on Israel. King Hussein never forgot that lesson, or forgave it. So today we're looking at the aftermath of the Six-Day War in terms of the Arab states and the Palestinians. The end of the war did not at all mean the end of warfare, 
just a new phase heading into the late 1960s. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Where King Hussein was subdued by the extent of the Arab loss, President Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt was in the opposite mood. He was even more defiant. The guns had barely quieted before he declared his intention to rebuild his military to take back by force the territories that he had lost. The Israeli scholar Michael Oren quotes Nasser, To my mind, the solution of peace is the way of surrender. The only way open to us is the road to war. End quote. He brokered a deal with the Soviet Union to rebuild Egypt's army. Incredibly, by 1968, the Egyptian army would be even stronger than it was before the Six-Day War, which will have important implications in a minute. Throughout the summer of 1967, while Israel debated about what to do with the territories, began the occupation, and initiated the building of small settlements, the Arab states sat seething. Arab leaders gathered in Khartoum, Sudan, for a summit about what to do. Nasser's goal was for the Arabs to get back the territories they had lost. He was focused on the long-term military option, in which any diplomatic effort would just be a stalling tactic. The Khartoum summit pinned the blame for the war on Israeli aggression. Not, you know, the fact that the Arabs had begun a war that they subsequently lost. What emerged was a resolution that would define Arab-Israeli relations for years to come. The Arab states agreed to a united front in pushing the so-called aggressive Israeli forces from Arab lands. And to do this, the Arabs established four main principles. No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations with it, and insistence on the rights of the Palestinian people in their own country. This became known as the infamous three no's of Khartoum. No peace, no recognition, no negotiation. Whether this rejectionism was simply hyped-up rhetoric rather than set concrete, Israel accepted the three no's at face value. So although Israel had hoped for a quick turnaround in negotiations to trade land for peace, instead they were now looking at a long-term impasse. Israel was stuck with the territories. After the three no's of Khartoum, the post-war effort to achieve some kind of solution made its way to the United Nations. In November of 1967, the UN passed Resolution 242, which became the foundation for future decades of peace negotiations. It called for the, quote, withdrawal of Israeli armed forces from territories occupied in the recent conflict, end quote. Now you lawyers will note the absence of the word the, before the word territories. Had it said the withdrawal of Israeli armed forces from the territories, well, that would have meant all the territories. But it left out the the, leaving ambiguity over which of the five territories Israel had captured would constitute a fulfillment of the resolution. Aha, loopholes. But the Arabic and French translations did include the word the, and so this is the version that the Arab states declared they would use leading to decades of disagreements. Oops. 
Resolution 242 also gave us one of the classic phrases that you hear in any discussion of the Israeli-Arab conflict. The UN called for an end to belligerency and respect for each country's sovereignty, and added the right of every state in the area to, quote, live in peace within secure and recognized boundaries, free from threats or acts of force, end quote. Secure and recognized boundaries, that's the phrase. It's the notion that through negotiations, the borders of Israel should be determined, accepted, and respected. So Resolution 242 became the basis of land for peace, Israel returning some or all of parts of the territories in exchange for peace with its Arab neighbors. Pretty simple formula. Israel and Jordan reluctantly accepted 242. Egypt hemmed and hawed. Iraq and Syria rejected it outright. But the Arab states, most especially President Nasser of Egypt, weren't interested in political solutions. With the exception of King Hussein, they were itching to continue armed conflict. In October of 1967, in between Khartoum and UN Resolution 242, Egypt attacked and sank the Israeli Navy ship Eilat, killing 47 sailors. The Egyptians seized on this as a great victory with due celebration. Two days later, Israel responded by destroying Egyptian oil refineries at the tip of the Suez Canal. Although this kind of tit-for-tat fighting had begun almost immediately after the Six-Day War, things now ramped up. Egypt and Israel tossed attacks back and forth across the Suez Canal. Artillery barrages met with commando raids. Tank attacks met with aerial bombardment. Israel built a series of fortifications up and down their side of the Suez Canal, designed to be an impregnable line of defense against Egyptian invasion. For three years, this conflict would rage in a complex struggle known as the War of Attrition. According to the Israeli government, more than 1,400 soldiers were killed in combat between 1967 and the official ceasefire in 1970. Compare that to the 800 killed in the Six-Day War. It was a frustrating, grueling, daily grind that confounded the Israelis. Etzer Weitzman was the IDF's chief of operations. He was the one who had organized the Air Force's preemptive strike on Egypt in the opening hours of the Six-Day War. He would later serve as Minister of Defense and then President of Israel. Weitzman wrote that Israel was not prepared to fight this type of war. They responded to attacks with commando raids that penetrated deep into Egyptian territory, blowing stuff up, which got great press and inspired the Israeli public, but didn't actually do much. Edzer Weitzman criticized the military establishment for not throwing its full strength at the Egyptians, dragging out the conflict. Quote, As the war dragged on, without any army finding a way to put a stop to it, I, unlike others, became gradually convinced that this was the first time we were not winning. I said so countless times. We failed in this war. We did not comprehend it correctly. End quote. But things would get worse. The war of attrition spread, sucking in Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and then the Palestinians. The rejectionism of the Khartoum Resolution left a vacuum. The three no's against peace, negotiation, and recognition took diplomacy off the table while insisting that Israel actually belonged to the Palestinians. So that legitimated violence as a means of opposition against Israel. And with the Arab states tied up in the post-war political process, 
that space was wide open for a player that wasn't tied to a state. The Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. Israel had been engaged with organized Palestinian terrorism since the early 1960s. But the Arab states' defeat, the Khartoum Resolution, and Israel's occupation of the West Bank now gave terrorism a turbo boost. This elevated the Palestinians' plight and suggested armed violence as an appropriate means of Palestinian aspirations. The PLO wasn't one group, but multiple factions, both working together and competing. The largest faction was called Fatah and was headed by Yasser Arafat. By 1969, Arafat would become the PLO's chairman and would spend the next several decades as the arch-terrorist nemesis of Israel. Arafat turned the PLO into a major force in Arab politics and the leading organization for resistance against Israel. The Israeli journalist Ronan Bergman writes that between the end of the Six-Day War and March of 1968, the PLO had killed 65 soldiers and 50 civilians, and Israel was again confounded with how to deal effectively with the threat. Bergman writes that Arafat, quote, had become the symbol of the Palestinian struggle, end quote. He quotes one of the top officials of the Shin Bet, Israel's internal security agency, quote, the elimination of Arafat is a precondition to finding a solution to the Palestinian problem, end quote. For almost as long as Arafat lived, Israel would try to kill him. After the Six-Day War, Yasser Arafat and the PLO moved into Jordan and set up their headquarters in a small village called Karameh, next to the Jordan River that marked the boundary line with the West Bank. From there, they launched dozens of attacks against Israeli targets, recruited fighters, and built out their growing terrorist network. Israel was determined to stop them. And so too, by the way, was King Hussein, who was always wary about challenges to his power. At one point, he sent an army unit to kick the PLO out of Karameh. The PLO fighters instead surrounded the Jordanians and forced a retreat. In other ways, however, the Jordanian army cooperated with the PLO and turned a blind eye to the PLO camps spreading out around Jordan. It was a complicated relationship. Israel was wary of the risks of a major military operation against Karameh and kept holding off. This was a classic dilemma faced time and time again. The imperative to act against terrorists, against the risk to civilians in the village. And there were political risks. Jordan was an ally of the United States, just like Israel. You don't want to make both King Hussein and the United States look bad and incur the anger of your main ally if something goes wrong. So the military was raring to go, but the politicians kept holding off. But on March 18, 1968, a PLO mine blew up a school bus, killing two adults and wounding ten children. Israel's patience had reached its limit. The government approved an attack. Israel thought the Jordanian army would stay out of it, even dropping leaflets on their positions to warn them that the PLO, not Jordan, was the target. But Jordan was worried that maybe this was a diversion for a larger operation, so deployed their forces in defensive positions. Meanwhile, a couple thousand PLO terrorists in Karameh dug in to defend themselves, way more militants than Israel thought there were. At dawn on March 21st, Israeli forces attacked over the Jordan River. 
They quickly got bogged down by the weather, Jordanian defenses, and PLO resistance. What was supposed to be a clean sweep turned into a drawn-out battle across a wide area. Israeli reinforcements coming into support were blocked by the Jordanians. And although Israel ultimately destroyed the main PLO camp, Yasser Arafat and most of his fighters got away, while Israel had to fight its way back home across the river. By the end of the day, around 30 Israeli soldiers have been killed, dozens more wounded, a couple dozen tanks destroyed, two fighter jets wrecked. Somewhere between 40 and 80 Jordanian soldiers were killed, with between 100 to 200 PLO fighters dead and more than 100 captured. From a military standpoint, it was something of a draw, though with an edge to Israel, which destroyed the PLO camp and sent Arafat and his fighters fleeing further back from the border. The PLO would now have a much harder time carrying out operations in Israel. But psychologically, the operation was a blow, and that had important implications. After the Six-Day War, the Israeli army was considered invincible. Sari Nusebe, a Palestinian writer and politician who was 18 years old in 1967, described the post-war reaction as, quote, stunned silence. After 1948, revolutions had swept away the old leaders accused of backwardness and corruption. This time, with the revolutionaries in charge, whom could you blame? If mighty Egypt, with its charismatic leader, Soviet armaments, and vast army, could be defeated without even putting up a fight, was there any worldly force capable of regaining Arab honor? End quote. The Israelis were taken to be superhuman. But now, after the sinking of the Navy ship Eilat and the disastrous raid at Karame, the Arabs had managed to score some big victories that pierced that image. Yasser Arafat had gotten away, the heroic fighter besting the Goliath Israeli military. This proved an inspiration to Palestinian identity, which was being strengthened by Israel's occupation of the West Bank. No matter how enlightened or benign that Israel wished it was, it was still an occupation that necessitated aggressive acts. Sari Nusebe writes about his family's Jerusalem home getting ransacked by Israeli soldiers, the family's valuables being taken and their personal papers and photos summarily thrown into a corner. Even their Volvo was taken by an Israeli officer. Nusebe noted that it was returned a few days later with a full tank of gas and an official apology. Several years later, Sari Nusebe would note the paradox of the occupation. Quote, Following the conquest of the West Bank, the Israeli plan was to integrate the new territories into the Israeli economy. And sure enough, after just a few years of occupation, Israelis were employing half of all Palestinians. Palestinians were free to travel across the old Green Line, and on weekends, hordes of Israelis descended on Arab villages for hummus and fresh vegetables. The peoples seemed to be merging, end quote. And yet, he writes, an ideological and psychological barrier was being created. Quote, the Israelis expected the Palestinians, paycheck and pocket, to forget about the nonsense of national identity. As a rule, Israelis didn't deny that there had been Arabs in their land of Israel when they got off the boat from Kiev, we were just not a people with the same national rights to territory and independence that the Jews claim for themselves. End quote. 
Nuseba didn't blame Jerusalem's mayor, Teddy Kolik, for building Jewish settlements in East Jerusalem. He wasn't a bad man, and Kolik thought that the settlements were both essential to Israel and would be helpful to the Arabs, who would appreciate the steady work and income provided by a fast-growing city. And yet, quote, What the mayor couldn't appreciate was how the laborers, merchants, and peasants he thought were benefiting from his plans shared a collective identity no less human and no less deserving of recognition, and no less riled when it was spat upon, to Kolek's own Jewish-Israeli identity, end quote. As Nuseba settled amongst his fellow Arabs in Jerusalem, he detected what he called, quote, a bad case of national schizophrenia, end quote. On the one hand, economic integration seemed to be going well between Israelis and Arabs, but at the same time, Palestinian nationalist identity was getting stronger. Quote, Arabs were becoming self-consciously Palestinian. The more the Arab body became immersed in the Israeli system, the more the Palestinian soul struggled to transcend it, end quote. This is powerful stuff. And so to bring it back to 1968 and the Battle of Karame, ultimately the Battle of Karame was mythologized as a huge success for the Palestinians specifically, and Jordan, and then the wider Arab world. The Israeli journalist Ronan Bergman writes that, quote, For the first time in a face-to-face battle, the Palestinians had succeeded in holding out against the strongest army in the Middle East. This showed who the real victors were. Arafat turned it into a legend of Palestinian grit in the face of enemy attack. After Karame, no one doubted that there was a Palestinian nation. End quote. Israelis, for their part, were devastated. They too had thought that their military was invincible after the Six-Day War, and losing 30 soldiers in a single operation was a huge blow. They had drastically miscalculated the power of their Jordanian army and the Palestinian fighters and paid dearly. The political fallout that they had worried about came true too, as Israel was condemned on the world stage and reprimanded by the United States. The plight of the Palestinians under occupation was thrust into the spotlight, Thousands of people signed up to fight with Fatah, and money came pouring in from all over the Arab world. In due time, Fatah came out even stronger. But now, Fatah wasn't the only major player in the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, which, remember, is made up of a variety of separate groups. The second largest group was the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. It had been founded in 1967 by George Habash, a Palestinian Christian. He was originally from Lida, a town in Israel, but he and his family had been expelled during the 1948 war in a brutal affair that saw them walk for several days without food or water. They ended up in Lebanon. The PFLP was particularly hardline in its approach to Israel. The PFLP looked at the Battle of Karame and came to an additional conclusion that if it was getting harder to carry out attacks inside Israel, that it was time to stage attacks against Israel from the outside. And so beginning in July of 1968, just a few months after Karame, the PFLP pioneered a new form of terrorism that is familiar to all of us today, the airplane hijacking. Over the next few years, the PFLP would stage one attack after another, often against El Al, Israel's flagship airline. 
It was a profoundly challenging new problem and a spectacle that captured the world's attention. And you can bet that it came with an Israeli response. So next time, Israel confronts this new form of terrorism. And in the midst of this, a new prime minister, only Israel's third, will come to power. As always, I'm at jewedonow.com and my email is jewedonowpodcast at gmail.com. Big thanks to my donors. Really deeply appreciate your contributions. And I'll look forward to seeing the rest of you when you invite Jew I Don't Know to your communities. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehi throat. See you later.